initial message was the same. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Well, as we move into chapter 5 of Matthew's gospel, John is in prison, and Jesus is ready to introduce that kingdom to his disciples. He's already been preaching for nearly a year by now, and has moved from the year of obscurity to the year of popularity. The multitudes are flocking to Jesus. They were coming from all over to hear him preach and to be healed by him. And chapter 5 opens with these words. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them. Now, Luke indicates that Jesus withdrew into the mountains to get away from the multitudes, to pray, and to select from his disciples twelve apostles, twelve men into which he could pour himself and to whom he would give the responsibility of building his kingdom. But before they could build the kingdom, they needed to understand it. And the time had come to introduce them to some very important kingdom principles. Now, this would be pretty heavy teaching. And it wasn't addressed to the multitudes, but to the disciples. Others had apparently followed them into the mountains, and we do call this the Sermon on the Mount, but it really wasn't a sermon for the masses. It was a message intended for the twelve. And when he sat down to teach them, they gathered around him, ready to learn. He opened his mouth and introduced them to the nature of his kingdom, revealing, first of all, the kingdom attitudes that would be required of any who would seek to enter in. Continuing in Matthew 5. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Now, I'm sure you recognize those verses. And they're commonly known as the Beatitudes from the Latin for blessedness. Well, someone, I don't remember who, referred to them as the Beatitudes. And I really like that. I really like that. Because 
what these verses do is outline the attitudes that one must have to be a part of the kingdom of heaven. And a very interesting thing about these be attitudes is how they build one on top of another. Now, this may change your way of thinking about the Beatitudes, so stay with me here, okay? If one would be a part of the kingdom of heaven, he must begin with an attitude that Jesus describes as poor in spirit. A man who is poor in spirit is someone who realizes his true spiritual nature who realizes that in and of himself he is spiritually bankrupt, that he's lost, alienated from his creator, and that he lacks the resources to save himself. That leads him to mourn over his condition. And in doing so, he finds comfort in the fact that God has provided the remedy for sin. And that fact humbles him. I like that word better than gentle or meek. The word describes a man who has been humbled like a horse that has been brought under control. A man who now understands both his limitations and his potential and decides to strive for righteousness. He hungers for it, like a starving man hungers for food and drink. And his hunger is satisfied in the righteousness that comes from Christ. Mercifully, his needs are met. And that makes him merciful toward others. Because of the pure love and acceptance he has found in Christ, his motives are pure as he seeks to bring others into peace with God and with each other. If we take these Beatitudes together, they paint a picture of the citizen, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. Contrary to the way we generally look at them, these are not isolated proverbs promising happiness to those who are poor, who mourn, who are meek, or who are hungry. This is a picture of the kingdom man showing the progression of attitudes that leads him from first desiring to enter the kingdom of heaven to the place where he not only has the assurance of seeing God, but where he actually becomes involved in kingdom work as a son of God. Jesus then makes clear the rewards that should be expected by the kingdom man. And some of them might surprise you. Let's read on. We're going quickly through this. We've got to remember, Jesus spoke these things very quickly. He didn't elaborate and build seven or eight sermons on the Beatitudes. He just boom, 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 boom. And so we're going to boom, boom today. 
Let's keep going. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when men cast insults at you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely on account of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, first we need to clear up just a little something here. You know, because both verses 10 and 11 begin with the words blessed, like the other verses did. And so many include these verses with the Beatitudes. Some suggesting that there are nine and others that there are actually only eight. That verse 11 just expands the idea of verse 10 and really doesn't constitute a separate Beatitude. And since they do begin with the word blessed, there's nothing wrong with considering one or both of them as Beatitudes. But I see them more as what comes from the seven Beatitudes than being Beatitudes themselves. You know, a man will be blessed as he builds a relationship with God based on kingdom attitude. And once he becomes truly a righteous individual, he will be blessed with a reward given to all who have been made righteous by Christ. A blessedness, a happiness that comes from knowing that you're right with God and that your eternity is secure. Now that is a deep-seated happiness that no one and no circumstance of life can take away. A happiness that even direct insults and persecution cannot dampen. And the world will strike out against anyone who is committed to the kingdom and is living a life characterized by kingdom attitudes. The world doesn't understand a kingdom based on submission and grace. So ridicule should be expected. And the more we become like Christ, the more the world will treat us as it did Christ. So we need to understand up front that life in the kingdom of heaven is not going to be easy. And Matthew does call it the kingdom of heaven rather than the more common kingdom of God. And he does that because he's writing to a Jewish audience. He's trying to avoid the, the Jewish aversion to using the name of God or even making a direct reference to him out of respect for him. And I'm kind of glad he refers to it as the kingdom of heaven. I like that. Because he's making it clear that life in the kingdom of heaven, at least the kingdom life experienced while on earth before actually being taken into heaven, is not going to be easy. We're going to be tested. We're going to be tried. We're going to be insulted and misunderstood. We may even be persecuted. But as Paul said in Romans 8.18, and as paraphrased, 
by J.B. Phillips, in my opinion, whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared to the magnificent future God has planned for us. We focus on our reward in heaven as we live on earth as citizens in the heavenly kingdom. And that reward we're looking forward to is great. It's going to blow everything else away. And it gives us joy even in the midst of persecution. As many of our brothers and sisters around the world are experiencing today. Constantly horrified by the news. The beheadings of Christians. The slaughter of children. Because they won't say they've given up Jesus. It's happening now. Persecution. It's such a foreign concept to us, but a daily experience for many of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And my prayer is that they keep their eyes focused on the reward and find joy. Joy, Jesus said. A blessedness, even in their time of persecution. We can find that. That is ultimately our reward for entering into the kingdom of heaven and adopting kingdom attitudes. And those attitudes enable us to meet kingdom obligations, and there are obligations in the kingdom. Let's read on. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how will it be made salty again? It is good for nothing anymore except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under a peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works And glorify your Father who is in heaven. The kingdom of heaven is intended to be just that, a kingdom. It was never Christ's intention that it remain a small group of personally selected disciples. Now, as we've already noted, Jesus is primarily addressing the twelve here. But he does not and did not want his message to remain with the twelve, with a small group. They were being trained as apostles so they could be sent into the world. That's what it means to be an apostle, one who is sent out. That's different than a disciple. A disciple is a learner. An apostle is one who's learned and is now sent out to do something. They were being sent out, they would be sent out, to build the kingdom, to bring others into the kingdom. And Jesus used the analogies of salt and light to explain how it was to be done. Salt permeates 
what it comes in contact with. And as it permeates, it not only enhances the flavor, it preserves. And that was its most important function in the days before refrigeration. Salt is a preservative. It slows down the process of decay. The apostles and all who subsequently come into the kingdom are expected to permeate society and check corruption. We are expected to make a difference. And note, we are not dispensers of the salt. We are the salt. We're to make a difference in the world. Not by sprinkling a little religion here and there, but by permeating society with men and women who have adopted kingdom attitudes, who have been changed into true sons and daughters of God and have thereby become peacemakers in every sense of the word bringing peace to a world that's alienated from their Creator, bringing peace in homes, peace in society, as we live out kingdom lives. We preserve the world by what we have become, not by what we say or even do. That's why it's so important that we be pure salt. That sounds strange to us. I mean, to us, salt is pure. Or it wouldn't be in that little blue box. The salt used in Palestine was not 100% pure. It often contained impurities that remained after the salt had dissolved. And these impurities were then thrown out and had very little, if any, value. If we would not find ourselves discarded as useless and ineffective, we must make certain that we remain pure. Pure from moral impurity and free from mixed motives. In order for salt to continue doing its job, it has to be pure. The same is true of us. We are the salt of the earth. And we are the light of the world. Again, we don't just shine the light. We are the light. You know, Jesus introduced himself as the light of the world. And then he turned that back to us. And he said, now you are the light of the world. It's kind of scary. We are the light of the world. And what does light do? As light, we are to penetrate darkness. We are to, to, to expose sin. Now, again, not by just pointing a finger and saying, look at all you sinners out there. We're to make sin evident by the life that we live. As it contrasts with the struggles and the heartache that's all around us. That's how we expose it. Not by marching on the street carrying a little sign. 
We expose it by living a life that is in contrast. And that light becomes so evident. And we're to light the way for others. It's not that we're trying to create an image that we're better than anybody else. It's that we have found something that they too can have. If they will come into the kingdom and go through what we've gone through. We do our work by living our lives openly and in full view of others. Now, that's not to say we do them perfectly. Part of living openly is acknowledging our failures as well. Acknowledging our sin. Doing away with pretense. Acknowledging that it's only by the grace of God that we are viewed as pure and righteous. And that we can be light in the dark world. We're to let people see our good works. Not, not to impress them. Our goal should not be social activism that makes the, the community say, wow, that church is doing great things. No, I don't think so. We're not to impress people with our goodness as individuals or as an organization. We're to let them see our life and the genuineness of our life and the good works that we do in such a way that they glorify our Father who's in heaven, not us. We let the world see what God has done with us. How He took us when we were poor in spirit and promised us the kingdom of heaven. How He then comforted us when we mourned over our sin and humbled us as we surrendered to His will. How He satisfied the need for righteousness through His mercy and the grace of His Son. And how that experience cleansed us and made us pure of heart, enabling us to become sons and daughters of God who could in fact bring peace on the earth by bringing men and women into relationship with their Creator and with each other. That's what it means to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That's what it means to be a citizen in the kingdom of heaven. So what about you this morning? Do you want to be a part of the kingdom of heaven here as well as in the hereafter? Are you willing to acknowledge your need for a Savior? Mourn over your sin? And then surrender to the Lordship of Christ? If you want to be a part of that kingdom, and you're willing to surrender to the Lordship of Christ, 
I invite you to come and to do so now. Just stand and sing.